morning. Before I get started, I just want to mention a couple of things. Uh, um, you know, we have started the process of registering for the camp, so I encourage all of you. you know, camp is something we do once a year, and it's a, a time to get together as a church and to uh, fellowship with each other in a more, um, you know, for, for an extended period of time to get to know each other better, but also for spiritual growth. And this year, you know, our theme is the victorious Christian life. We have a, a, a very good speaker, Brother John Kurian. He'll be taking all the six sessions. Uh, we, we thought we'll have one speaker this time. Um, so please do sign up for that. I know there are people calling you. I know I got a call this week asking if I was attending camp. So thank you, Ronnie, for faithfully doing your job. Um, uh, so hopefully all of you if, you, if you don't get a call in the next couple of weeks, please reach out to... Um, uh, to uh, Bobbin or uh, Starlet who are coordinating the camp, it probably means that somehow you are uh, not on the list or something. You know, we've got a list of people. We've tried to add all the new people, but it's always possible that we've missed out. Uh, secondly, um, you know, we have a lot of new folks here, especially new college students, and we are very happy to have you here. Uh, welcome. Um, you know, I just want to encourage all of you to be a part of one of our college groups. So the reason we started this... Uh, a year or two ago was really to give you an opportunity. You know, you are going through a, a, a you know period in your life where you've you know you've left home for the first time, perhaps uh, in the case of most of you, and uh, you're faced with a lot of challenges and a lot of uh, uh, situations at your college. And it's important that you're connected and fellowshipping with like-minded believers. And uh, we have uh, brothers and sisters leading these studies, so do try to attend those regularly and and be a part of them. Uh, I think you will benefit. Uh, so our, our, our desire is that during the three years or four years or whatever that you're here, that um, you, know, you will uh, not only uh, you know, get a degree and um, you know, grow in your academics and your capability, but you will also grow spiritually through the ministry in the church and through the fellowship uh, with, the, with the believers. That is, that is our desire. So do, do a, be, a part, be a part of that. Okay, let's... Um, Come to our study this morning. We're continuing our study through the book of Philippians. So we have uh, come to chapter 2. And over the last uh, uh, few times, last couple of times that I spoke, we were really looking at chap- chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, which is uh, you know, one of the, the, the most majestic, probably along with Ephesians chapter 2. It's the, uh, the two most familiar passages or most quoted or most... Uh, uh, referred to passages uh, of scripture which talks about uh, the, in this case in Philippians 2 5 to 11 it talks about the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, you know when I went through that uh, in the two Sundays I, I mentioned that sometimes we uh, we get caught up in the, the, the majesty of this passage that, that so eloquently talks about how Christ humbled himself came down to the, to the earth and uh, was obedient unto death and then how God has exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. And because it's a, it's a passage that stands on its own, we miss the, the fact that Paul has actually, in reality, he's uh, taken a bit of a tangent there. He's gone off, not really a tangent, but uh, a bit of a detour uh, from the main subject, which is, uh, you know, he starts this in chapter 1, verse, verse 27, where he says, Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come 
and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So Paul is actually, you know, in the first part of Philippians, he, he has his prayer for the Philippians. He talks about his own condition uh, as, uh, as he is in, um, in prison. He's in the house arrest, uh, waiting for trial before Caesar. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him. He's going through this time of suffering. He doesn't know the outcome of this, whether he's going to get freed uh, and return back to the ministry or his life is going to come to an end. He's going to be put to death, convicted and put to death. And, uh, you know, we studied this passage in, in, uh, in, uh, first, uh, uh, in Philippians 1, uh, where he says that uh, for me to live, verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So he mentioned that, <clears throat> we mentioned there that, you know, Paul uh, has this, this burning desire to be with the Lord Jesus Christ and how he values dying and going to be with the Lord far more because of his love for the Lord, because of his desire to be in the presence of God and taken out of the world of sin. And yet he says that for your sakes, <clears throat> you know, if I were to live, uh, I, would, I would, you know, I, I, I want to live for your sake so that I might continue to minister to you so that you may grow. So his life was about living for Christ but the desire was to be with Christ. And then from verse 27 onwards, he comes back to addressing issues that were there in the, uh, in the Philippian church. And this is what Paul does uh, in a lot of his epistles. He addresses issues that were prevalent in the local church or the churches that he was writing to. You know, last uh, couple of weeks ago, Jobin spoke uh, from uh, 1 Corinthians and he was talking about, uh, you know, the subject of believers uh, not filing lawsuits. We should not go to court with each other. So these were all problems that were there in the early church. And it's, it's quite interesting that even after a couple of thousand years, we find that many of these problems that were there in the early church, we have them even today. So it is really no different. And therefore, you know, the word of God being living and sharper than a two-edged sword, the, the instructions given to these churches are just as applicable to us and we have just as much to draw from them as that early Philippian church would have had when they received this letter and they read it out publicly and they could apply it to their own condition. And Paul was quite forceful in presenting this to them. So in, in, uh, from chapter 1 verse 27, he really uh, you know, brings to the fore this issue of unity. He says, I want you to walk worthy or conduct your, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he says that you should stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And uh, in chapter 2 verse 1 to 4 if we can read that. He says if there is any consolation in Christ. If any comfort of love. If any fellowship of the spirit. If any affection and mercy. Fulfill my joy by being like minded. Having the same love. There is that word again being like minded. Right back in um, uh, in verse 27 he says, "Be you stand fast in one spirit and one mind. Here he says, be like-minded, uh, having the same love, uh, being of one accord, of one mind. Again, one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of of others so uh, you know he starts off there and uh, in 2-4 and then he makes a little bit of a detour as I said and he says okay let me stop the 
the uh, the scolding if you want or whatever you want to call it the instruction and he says let me tell you let me give you this example and this example of unity of obedience of humility is none other than our lord and then he says let this mind be in you which was also in christ jesus and so he goes on into the section where he takes a detour from his appeal to unity to present christ as an example of the type of humility that is needed in order to have unity in the church the reason that we don't have unity in the church or reason that we have disunity in the church and we have problems in the church and we have issues between believers uh, between brothers and sisters <clears throat> is because of the lack of humility and he says that this unity needs to be present in the church community and it is grounded in the example of Christ's humility and his obedience which ultimately led to his um, to his uh, exaltation you know this this principle of of god honoring humility is that throughout scripture in james chapter 4 and verse 6 it says he gives more grace therefore he says god resists the proud but gives grace to the humble one thing that god really hates is pride god cannot tolerate pride it says god resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble if we want grace if we want unity if we want togetherness if we want maturity and spiritual growth in our own lives in the life of our church community we need to have this humility and so with that you know he he leaves off in verse 4 he talks in verse 5 to 11 about this <clears throat> sacrifice of the lord jesus the example of humility and then in verse 14 if we come back uh, come to verse 14 which we look at in a few minutes it says do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of god without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world do all things without complaining and disputing so you see he's coming back to his basic theme and this entire section starting in verse 1 chapter 1 verse 27 all the way through chapter 2 and verse 18 which we'll look at this morning is an appeal to the church community as to how they are to interact with each other how they are to have their conduct be worthy of the gospel of christ in one end and then at the other end how they are to shine as lights in the world and he's addressing the community as a whole to say you as a body of christ you need to show live by the example given to us by our lord jesus christ and so in this chapter paul goes into a few things that are <clears throat> really important for us to to look at he says therefore my beloved let's come to verse 12 therefore my beloved as you have always obeyed not as in my presence only but now much more in my absence work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is god who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure so we'll break this up into three three sections here the first one paul uh, says that he wants them to do something and that is that he wants them to work out your own salvation work out your own salvation and we we'll look at what that means in a minute and how uh, what relevance this has to all of us and in our lives not only as individuals but as a church but he starts off saying therefore my beloved therefore the basis for his appeal and what is the therefore referring to it's referring to immediately to the verses 5 through 11 where he presents the work of christ the work of christ in coming down to the world the humility of christ the obedience of christ in going to the cross and dying 
and then the exaltation of Christ. And he's saying that the basis for my appeal, I'm appealing to you because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. Because of the example that the Lord Jesus Christ has set. Consider his humility. Consider his obedience that he became obedient to the point of death. And consider the consequences of his obedience that God has highly exalted him. And what we saw when we studied that chapter is that, is that after the humility came the exaltation. And sometimes, you know, we find it hard to be humble. To be humble means sometimes giving in to others. To be humble means putting ourselves down and not looking out only for our own interests. As he says in verse 4, let each of you look out not only for his own interests but also for the interests of others. And sometimes it's tough to do that. Because, you know, we feel like we are putting ourselves down. But the example of the Lord Jesus Christ tells us that because the Lord Jesus Christ, he humbled himself. He laid aside everything he had in heaven. He came down to this earth and he suffered and he was completely obedient to the will of the the Father. Therefore, as a consequence, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. It says, you know, we need not worry that we are humiliating ourselves. We need not worry that, that we are going to lose out on something because in eternity, even in this life, perhaps God will give us an exaltation. Of course, we won't be exalted to the level of the Lord Jesus Christ, but nevertheless, as that verse in, in James says, God, exalt, God gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud. He will exalt us. You know, you humble yourself before the Lord and He will lift you up in James 4 again when you read those verses there. It says, humble yourself, you know, weep and mourn and wail. Purify yourselves, you sinners. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. This is a promise in scripture that when we humble ourselves, God will lift us up in his own way. And therefore, we need not be concerned uh, that when we humble ourselves, when we put ourselves down in the interest of maintaining relationships, in the interest of, of, of looking out for the interests of other believers, we need not worry that somehow we are losing out on something. The Lord Jesus Christ did not lose out because he came down to the world and because he... Uh, gave up everything to go to the cross and he humbled himself and was obedient unto death. So the basis for this appeal, he says, therefore it is the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, the example of the Lord Jesus. And then he says, therefore, my beloved. We see the tone of the appeal. And, and when we, you know, look at these scriptures and, and the way that Paul, you know, Paul sends some very, very tough messages. He writes some very tough things to to the, uh, the, the, the recipients of these letters in the, in the epistle to the Galatians, at one point he calls them, Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You know, he does not mince any words. And yet we find that, that in the midst of all that, Paul, you know, he, he, he goes back to that, that very soft tone to encourage them. And he wants them to know that he's doing this not to put them down, but to encourage them. He says, therefore, my Beloved, agapetos is the Greek word. My esteemed ones, my dear ones, my favorite ones. This is the same term that God the Father used of Christ when he said, this is my beloved son. He addresses them with a term of affection. And he says, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more than my absence. He says, I'm going to tell you something that might be tough for you, but I want to encourage you because you have always obeyed my instruction. You have always had that desire and I have seen that you have obeyed in the past and that you have been faithful to the commands of God and to the teachings of the word and to the teachings of the apostles. My beloved ones, my 
my my loved ones my 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 favorite children in the lord you have always obeyed and so on the basis of that i'm coming to you and he the tone of his appeal and it's important for us to learn from these little things that we see here that you know how do we address our fellow believers particularly when we have to give them a tough message you know i've had people call me from time to time somebody does something and and uh, or says something from the uh, you know when they are preaching that they don't agree with and and the tone that that comes out is you know you need to talk to this person and put them down right now and make sure they understand what is right and correct them you know that's our tendency you know we are we are self righteous we come out with self righteousness but paul doesn't have that kind of attitude he says therefore my beloved he addresses them uh, you know to assure them that this this instruction is coming <clears throat> and this criticism is coming out of love for him you know uh, proverbs 15:1 says <clears throat> a soft answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger a soft answer turns away wrath and we need to think about how do we approach our fellow believers when we have to uh, talk to them about you know difficult things maybe you want to have a tough conversation with somebody maybe somebody is not uh, going down the right path maybe you have to confront them about a sin you know it's important that we understand that that you know we are all together we are part of this church community that we are all sinners who have been redeemed by the blood of christ and we need to approach them as our beloved we want to encourage them we want to look for ways to encourage them based on the good things that we have seen in them in this case the apostle paul says you have always obeyed not just when i am there you know not just to please me but even when i'm away i've seen that you have always obeyed and so in that spirit i want to come to you and tell you give you this instruction and what is the appeal that he makes them he says work out your own salvation work out your old salvation and he goes on and says with fear and trembling the word work out here it means to accomplish or to carry out to do it is an action and this uh, verse is almost is is, is often uh, uh, you know cause some controversy although there's no need for that you know people say that when he says work out your own salvation that he's propagating a salvation by works but that's not the case you know if you go back to uh, ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 where it talks about the <clears throat> the seminal passage on salvation by grace it says uh, in verse 10 for we are his workmanship so remember earlier on in verse for it says god who is rich in mercy because of his grace with uh, great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our in trespasses made us alive together with christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly place in christ jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in christ jesus verse 8 for by grace you have been saved through faith and not that not of yourselves it is the gift of god not of works we are not saved by works we do not receive our salvation by anything that we do or any good in us scripture is very clear uh, you are saved uh, not of yourselves it is the <clears throat> gift of god not of works lest anyone should boast and then he says though in verse 10 for we are his workmanship we are the workmanship of god uh created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them we are created for a purpose we are recreated for a purpose we are saved for a purpose and that is to do good works we do the good works because of the changed life that is in us as we were reminded this morning 
before we gave thanks for the bread, the Holy Spirit dwelling within us gives us that power and that freedom to overcome the sinful nature uh, that is also in us. And so he says, work out your own salvation. It is the outworking of your salvation. It is the outward manifestation of your salvation. And remember the context is unity in the body of Christ. He's telling them you have been saved into one body of Christ. The Lord Jesus has saved you and brought you all into one body. He's building you. He has added you as another brick in his church. And, and as one body you need to live out that way. You have been saved into this one body. You work it out. Show it in your, in your, in your life. And what is to be the attitude uh, behind this? It says here with fear and trembling. We're back in Philippians 2 verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We have to have a reverence and a holy fear and holy awe of God. A healthy fear that leads to action. You know, you all know what this means. You know, when you are at work and you have an assignment due, right? That is going to be reviewed by somebody that has to, or, or you have to make a presentation. Uh, you have a certain something in you that's, you can call it sort of a bit of a fear that, you know, if I don't do this, you know, then there might be some consequence or I might embarrass myself or I might not look good or I may not get this promotion or I may get a, a poor rating and, and this sort of motivates us. You know, when we are doing something that, that somebody important is going to come and look at, you know, we put more effort into it. We have that little, little fear. That's the way we are wired. You know, it's, it's sort of a healthy thing that, that forces us to do the best that we can. And that's what he's, he's saying. You take this seriously, the working out of your salvation. You need to take it seriously in your life. It is a healthy fear. Is our salvation being worked out in our lives? Are the fruits of salvation evident in our life? How serious are we about it? Let me ask you this. You know, you, I don't know, you know, many of you have been saved for many years. Maybe you got saved when you were young. Maybe you heard the gospel in VBS or Sunday school or maybe your parents told you and you said a prayer. But when you look back at your life, if you have not seen any change, if you have not seen change or you're not seeing change of late and you're finding that you're, you're digressing, you know, that's a problem. Either you're a saved person who is not growing or perhaps you were never saved to begin with. That's a very fine line that between you and the Lord, you need to figure that out. But as a believer, it is not an option. It is a command that you are to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You have to take it seriously. It is not a joke. It is not something, you know, somebody told me once about one of, a relative of mine, an older brother, you know, who, who was into all kinds of stuff and the people from the church went to him to, uh, to uh, you know, to, to, to tell him that he needed to change, that he needed to get out of this worldly things and, 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 and focus on growing spiritually and his answer to them was, oh, it's okay, I already got my passport to heaven, you know. I don't, need to, I don't need to do anything anymore. Why, why, why are you worried that you know, I'm not living properly? Hmm? It's not about passport to heaven. That is not... You know, if you are truly saved, if you really understand what the Lord Jesus has done for you, then that Holy Spirit is in you. He will prompt you towards working out your salvation. We need to have spiritual growth in our life. Is your salvation, is my salvation being worked out in life. How do you know if it's being worked out? Take a look at where you are today compared to where you were one year ago or five years ago or ten years ago. Are you growing in the Lord? Are you seeing the fruit of the Spirit being manifested in your life? If you are not, the command of the Apostle Paul to you today is work out your own salvation 
with fear and trembling and this is our responsibility you know when it comes to salvation um you know there is there is only um there is only one one person uh, at work here and that is that is god you know our salvation is all of god in ephesians 2 says you were dead in your sins and trespasses okay when we are dead there is nothing we can do we cannot save ourselves we cannot get up from that coffin and and uh, and start walking we need the work of god god has to come and quicken us and wake us up out of that slumber uh, wake us up raise us up from the from the dead condition we are in and so our salvation our redemption is all <clears throat> the work of god we have absolutely nothing to do with it with it ourselves but our sanctification sanctification is the progressive maturity that we are to see in the life of the believer where god is conforming us to the image of his son the lord jesus christ we are now but now we are alive we have been made alive in the lord jesus christ we have the holy spirit dwelling within us as we saw from romans 8 we are no, no longer slaves we don't have to be slaves to the sinful nature and it requires our action with the power of the holy spirit so sanctification involves the 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 progressive sanctification of the believer is not just something that involves god but it also involves us in fact in this passage paul uh, touches on both of those aspects for he says in verse 13 if we go to the next point he says for it is god who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure you see there's two kinds of working going on here on the one hand he tells the believers he says you work out your own salvation on the other hand he says it is god who works in you so even as we are working out our salvation we are not alone in this we are not uh, left alone we are not left powerless we are not left without the means to be successful in this work of ours but rather god is also working in us and when you look at dig into a little more he says god who works you know there is the 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 word work is used of us okay work out your own salvation and is used of god who works in you right and the word that's used in the greek are two different words the word that's used here in verse 13 is the word energio it's the word from which we get the english word energy or the power it is not the doing it is not the actual doing whereas the word that's used in verse 12 is is um Uh, this stuff to pronounce but it's katar gezomai it is to do it is an action you know we are to do but where does the power to do come from the energy it comes from god it is not the doing but the energizing it doesn't mean that god is doing it for us but that he supplies the power he empowers us and he what is he empower he says it is god who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure both to will and to do those are two things the will is the desire the do is the action and he says he is giving you he is empowering your willingness your attitude your intent the holy spirit is there telling you you need to do this you need to do this i hope you hear that voice when you are falling into sin he warns you through your conscience when you are uh, being lackadaisical he says you need to make a change in your life god is empowering our willing but also our doing our ability we are not left without the ability that comes from god he supplies the working power and he empowers us to obey why it says for his good pleasure because god is pleased he gets pleasure 
from our obedience. He gets pleasure as we work out our salvation and we grow. And, and if we have um, a duty to God because of what he has done for us, it is, it is to live our lives to bring pleasure to him. And we do that by working out our own salvation. God's mighty power is at work in all of us who are saved. Let's go to uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 1. We see the same thoughts expressed there where Paul is praying for the Ephesian believers. Ephesians 1 verse 18, he says, the eyes, so this is Paul's prayer for the Ephesian believers. He says, he prays that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know, you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. He's praying that you may know what is the exceeding greatness of his power, the power of God towards us who believe. According to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This is a parallel passage to Ephesians chapter 5 and he's saying here that, that, um, you know, that look at the power that God exerted in raising Christ. Probably the most, one of the most powerful things that God ever did was to raise Christ from the dead and he raised him up uh, and seated him in the heavenly place and he says this same power I want you to know that this same power the greatness of this power toward those of us who believe all of us who are children of God we can experience this power in our lives and we have this power to fulfill the appeal to work out our own salvation so God's mighty powers that work in those of us who are saved you know do you feel this power do you feel this power in your life, the mighty power that raised the Lord Jesus Christ and exalted him. Do you feel the power? Do you have the desire and the will? Do you feel discouraged? Do not be discouraged. You have the power. Pray that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened. You know, when you feel weak to do the, uh, live according to the word of God, when you feel that you are succumbing to sin in your life, Get on your knees and ask God to, to show you this power. That's what Paul is praying for the Ephesian believers. He says that I'm praying that you may know the exceeding power of God on behalf of you. What struggle with obedience are you facing today? Do you feel powerless and defeated? You know, maybe some of you are facing struggles in, in your married life. Maybe some of you are facing struggles in uh, you know, with, uh, with sin, with, uh, uh, with immorality, with uh, things like pornography and other things, and you feel defeated because you feel like you're trying, but you keep falling. Working out your salvation in obedience is a partnership. God empowers and we do. We take it seriously with fear and trembling. We appropriate the power of God. You know, someone asked the question the other day and we were having a little conversation on WhatsApp, and he asks this question, you know, or, or more like sort of a, a, a frustration, perhaps. He says, "Why is sanctification so tough? Why is sanctification so tough? You know, wouldn't it be nice if God would just remove us, remove the sinful nature at the time of salvation? That would be really nice, wouldn't it? But for some reason, God has left us here." And the reason he cannot, he, not he cannot, God can do anything, but he has chosen not to remove. Because you see, we are in the sinful world. All of creation is, is, is subject to the curse. 
and the only way to for for god to 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 uh, take us uh, take the sinful nature out is to take us out of this world because we cannot be in this world and not have that nature you know the t- day is coming when he will do all that and he will recreate the the heaven and the earth as scripture tells us but what god wants is to keep us here and he's keeping us here for a purpose right he's keeping us here for a purpose because he wants us to show the power of a saved life he wants us to show the power of the gospel to the to the lost that are out there in second uh, peter 3:9 it says the lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness but is long suffering toward us not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance he is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance he wants us here because it is through us and through the church that god wants to show his power to the world you know if he just transformed all of us and took us out of this world so that we don't have to deal with with the the, the issues of the sinful nature in this world then there would be no one here to spread that gospel would there because god works through us to show the power of a of a transformed life and that is why he has left us here and he has given us the power we still are bound by that sinful nature but we are no longer slaves to it romans chapter 6 let's just read a couple of verses there romans 6 and this is an important point that we need to understand um, romans 6 verse 17 and 18 Romans 6 verse 17 and 18 says but god be thanked that though you were slaves of sin yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were and having been set free verse 18 having been set free from sin you became slaves of righteousness so he's telling us that we are no longer slaves of sin instead we are slaves of righteousness and you come back to verse 11 chapter 11 i'm sorry chapter 6 and verse 11 it says um, likewise you also reckon yourselves to be dead you know regard yourself consider yourself count yourself reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin but alive to god in christ jesus our lord therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin but present yourselves to god as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to god why is it that we struggle with sin in our life it is because we continue to present our members the the parts of our body our eyes our mind our hands our legs our feet we continue to present ourselves as instruments of unrighteousness to sin and he says stop doing that present yourselves you have the power of god to be able to we are no longer slaves to the sinful nature there is god's part and there is our part you know galatians 6 says that you are to sow to the spirit he who sows to the flesh will reap of the flesh fleshly things he who sows to the spirit you know whatever a man sows that will he also reap if you are having trouble and struggles with with pornography and things like that look at what it is that you are sowing into your life you are not working out your salvation you are not appropriating the power of god instead you are succumbing you are presenting yourself as your members as instruments of unrighteousness 
to sin. Look at what you are feeding into your mind. Look at where you are spending your time. Look at the things that you are watching on the screen. Look at how much time you are not spending feeding the spirit. You feed the spirit by spending time in the word of God. You feed the spirit by spending time on your knees in prayer. And when we do these things, we will feel the power of God. And together we will, with the help of God, by the grace of God, we will see that we are working out our salvation and we will bring about spiritual growth. And when the church is growing spiritually, then you have humility and you have unity in the church. Work out your own salvation. That's the first thing that Paul, instruction that Paul gives him. The second instruction we find in verses 14 through 16. And he says here, live a blameless and innocent life before the world. And here he comes back to the uh, specific application within the Philippian church. After giving them this general direction of working out your salvation um, and working towards sanctification, he says, do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. He says, do all things without complaining and disputing, without arguing. You know, complaining and disputing are sins that lead to disunity in the church. Complaining means indicates a lack of discontentment. If you go back to 1 Corinthians 10, 10, I'm not going to go there because I'm running out of time. But we see Israel, he talks about Israel grumbling against God. And we see the negative impact that these few grumblers, complainers had. They brought down the whole people of God. They were in complain that oh look what this Moses has done he's brought us into the wilderness we had all these good things to eat in Egypt come on let's forget about Moses he's been gone for 30 days we have, we have no idea what has become of it let's get all our gold together and let's build a golden calf and worship it and, and worship that as our God grumbling and complaining disputing being contentious these are attitudes that reflect selfish ambition and conceit rather than humility these are not Christ-like behavior. Oh, it's so easy to grumble and complain in the church, is it not? How is our attitude? You know, we can complain about the preacher, we can complain about the elders, we can complain about our fellow brother and sister. I've heard all kinds of complaints, you know. Oh, this sister came and walked by and didn't look at me today, okay? Or this sister or brother walked by me and gave me this odd look in my face. So many things to complain. No, the preacher, you know, he was so boring today. You know, we have no idea what he said. The elders should correct him. Oh, did you see the elders are not doing anything about this? So many reasons why we can grumble and complain and grumble and complain. There's a story that uh, Spurgeon once told a story of the, the ox. You know, the two uh, ox were pulling this bullock cart. You know, and then the wheels, you know, the wheels were very, very creaky and making all this huge noise, you know, rumbling, rumbling, rumbling. And then the ox turns out to the, to the wheel and says... Uh, what is wrong with you? You are not doing anything. You are just sitting over there and rolling. We are the ones who are pulling it. You know, you have absolutely no reason to complain. Right? So it's the people who don't do anything that usually end up complaining. People who are not putting in the effort. Just sit in the back there. You know, oh, nobody's visiting me. You know, when was the last time you visited somebody? We are a church body. We are all members equally of the church body. It's so easy to find things that are wrong. Oh, the Sunday school, they're not teaching my kids properly. They should have another class. My child is too small, too big. So many things we can complain about. But he says, do all things, everything, 
There is no exception here without complaining and disputing. Grumbling and complaining is sin. And why, why, why is it? What is the reason why he gives us instruction? He says that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. It is because of our testimony. You see how the fights and the problems in the church have created a bad testimony for the gospel and the name of Christ. He says, you are living in a crooked and perverse generation. Oh, Philippians, we are too. There are people out there who want to throw stones at the church, who want to persecute the church, who want to find everything wrong with it. To be without fault. To be blameless. What does it mean? Does blameless mean sinless? No. Blameless has to do with how other people perceive us. The way we live our lives, people should be, should be uh, able to find no fault. We, we studied about Daniel last week. He was blameless. Not that he wasn't without sin. I'm sure Daniel had, had thoughts in his mind that were sinful just like any other human being. But when people looked on his life, they could not point at anything that he did wrong that they could observe. That is what it means to be blameless. The way we conduct ourselves at our workplaces, the way we conduct ourselves with the government, the way we, uh, the way we react to people, the way we treat people, people should, be, should not be able to find blameless. We should be blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Consider the damage done to the gospel because of infighting within the church communities. Do we consider this in our dealings with each other? You know, very often instead of, instead of preaching the gospel, instead of reaching out, we spend more time arguing with each other. And we need to have a vision. And what is that vision? Verse... Um, 15, it says, uh, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of light, of life. Shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. That should be the vision statement for our life. Our vision and goal for ourselves, as the Lord said, that you are to shine. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify the Father in heaven. How are we shining as lights? How do we shine as lights? By holding forth the word of life. By living the gospel. By living in obedience to the living word of God. Which gives life to those who are dead in their sins and trespasses. And that is why God has left us on the earth. Go back to that, that question we had. Why did God leave us here to struggle with sin? Why didn't he just take us away? It's because he wants us to shine as lights in the world, so that others may be drawn toward the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is our vision? What is our goal for our life? Is it, just, is it just to get a job? Is it just to get a degree if you're a student? Is it just to be successful and make some money? Or is it to shine as a light amidst a crooked and perverse generation that is out there? And then Paul goes on to talk about the reward. He says, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run <coughs> in vain or labored in vain. He says, you know what? I want to have the joy. I want to see you walking according to the uh, uh, conduct worthy of the gospel. I want to see you working out your salvation. I want to see you not grumbling and disputing. I want to see you shining as, as lights in the world. Why? So that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. So that I may realize that I did not run in vain. You know, And th- that is just such a joy when you 
pour your life into somebody and you see and the greatest joy that I have in looking at, at people in this church is to, is to see how, how much so, some folks have grown in terms of their devotion to the Lord. Folks who used to sit at the back five years ago, six years ago, how they are so much more active, how they are leading their families, how they are studying the scriptures, spending time in prayer. None of us want to run in vain. When we see that the effort, what the effort that we pour into people's life has produced, you know, Paul is looking forward to that. And he's saying, I want to rejoice when I'm at the judgment seat of Christ and I see God say to you, you know, Jesus say to you, thou good and faithful servant, enter into my rest. And then finally, very quickly here, verse 17 and 18, he closes out the section by looking at their mutual suffering. You know, Paul, even as he gives them these tough instructions, even as he criticizes them for their grumbling and their complaining, he lovingly instructs them and he recognizes that they are also facing suffering and that they are serving the Lord. And we see the tenderness of Paul coming through. He says, yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Verse 18, for the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. Are we tender with our fellow believers? Paul is here referring back to the burnt offering. I don't have time to go there. But there were two parts of the burnt offering. You would have uh, the animal that was burnt and sacrificed and then you would have a drink offering that would be poured out to the Lord. And Paul is saying, your suffering and my suffering are the two parts of the sacrifice. You know, your suffering is the burnt animal being burnt and my uh, imprisonment is like the, uh, the, um, the, 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 the drink offering being poured out. And he said, together, you know, in, when we go back to Numbers, uh, in Numbers 28 verse 6, it says that this sacrifice put together is a sweet aroma to the Lord. He says, your life and your suffering and my life and my suffering, the suffering of the church put together is a sweet smelling aroma to the Lord. But only if we have that humility, only if we, if we have unity, only if we are looking out for the interests of others rather than our interests. And then he says, for the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. He says, don't be discouraged. You know, you're seeing problems in the church. You're seeing suffering and persecution from outside. Don't be discouraged. Be glad and rejoice. What is our response to suffering? We have to be glad and rejoice. It is joy here is a verb. It is not a sentiment. It is not a feeling. You know, you get, you rejoice and you feel joyful even as you are going through the difficult circumstance. How do we respond as individuals? How do we respond as a church? Paul says here, for the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. In conclusion, how are we doing at working out our salvation? How is our obedience to the word of God? Where are we falling short? We need to take stock. Are we making use of the power that we have from God, the power to will and the power to do? Are we living blameless and innocent lives before the world? When people look at us, do they, do they, do they see, you know, can they point a finger at us? Or can they say there is no fault? You know, I see something different in him or in her. For those of you who are college students, you know, it's so easy to get tempted and fall into, you know, for the sake of friendship, to go after the kind of things that people of the world do. But you ought to be blameless and innocent. What is our attitude towards the church? Are we constantly grumbling and complaining about each other? Or are we shining as lights to draw others to Christ? How are we handling suffering and difficulties in our life? Are we joyful? And finally, to put it all together, are we living in humility? This all comes down to humbling ourselves before the Lord. 
following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord enable us to do this. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit that you've given to us, Lord. I want to pray for each of us, Father, that whatever struggle we are facing in our life today, Lord, struggle that is stopping us, that is hindering us from working out our salvation, from seeing spiritual growth, I pray, Lord, that we would confess those struggles to you, that we would resolve, Father, that we have to work out our salvation, Lord, but with your power, that we may seek, Lord, we may ask you, Lord, we may get on our knees and seek your understanding, that your, that, that your power would open the eyes of our understanding to see the mighty power that is in us, Lord, to realize that we have the power to resist, Lord, to stop presenting our members as instruments of unrighteousness. Help us, Lord, whatever area in our life that we are feeding the flesh rather than the spirit. And in so doing, Lord, we pray that we may grow as individuals, that we may grow as believers, that our salvation as it gets worked out, Lord, may produce the fruit of the spirit in our lives and our relationships with each other may change, that we may lift each other up, that we may rejoice to see the spiritual growth in our brother and sister, that we as a church may be united in heart and spirit, Lord, that we may look out for each other's interests. Lord, we thank you for the good things we see in our church, but we pray, Lord, that we would not rest on that, but we would go on from strength to strength. Help us, Lord, to shine as lights in the world to this crooked and perverse generation that we live in that is becoming even more crooked and perverse by the day. As Satan does his work, Lord, we pray that we as a church might be a blessing to the communities around us, Lord. That people who come here, Lord, might, might be blessed by the power of the gospel. Lord, we pray that you will help us to deal with our sufferings and our troubles and tribulations in our life with joyfulness. Thank you, Father, for the instruction in your word. We commit ourselves into your hands again now in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.